Hello, good evening. Welcome. We're here again for another Q&A session. Q&A meditation session. So we're not just about an asking and answering questions. It's also about meditating. We can take this opportunity to jumpstart our practice by injecting the Dhamma into our concurrent practice. So as we're practicing, as we're observing and straightening our minds out, we get to listen and talk about the Dhamma, which is a great way to bring us back to the Dhamma. And we hear the Dhamma again and again. Again and again we're brought back to what's important. And so it helps helps us in our quest to straighten our minds. So you can close your eyes. Get into a meditative frame of mind. Start observing the body feelings, mind, dhamma, as they arise and cease. If you have a question, go ahead and post it in the chat. Chat is not for chatting, it's for asking questions. Once you've asked your question, go back, close your eyes, continue on. If there are no questions, maybe everyone's tired of this format. We don't have people coming back. Maybe not new people coming. Then, well, those of us that are here, we can stay in our practice of meditation, practice together. Do we have some questions? Yeah, go ahead. I feel like I enter trance-like meditation too often. Any advice on how to get to the root? I don't know if you've read the booklet on how to meditate. Uh, one great thing about this sort of meditation is it helps to break up any uh, fixations the mind has. So the mind can be, get very accomplished at focusing on one object, but that doesn't really help when you have to deal with life, where the objects are coming consecutively in rapid speed. So uh, the mindfulness practice allows you to be more flexible to adapt to the experience. So if you read the booklet, it might help. If you want to take an at-home course, that might help. Really, trance is something that you'll find um, is broken up by this practice. And you get in a different sort of focus or trance. It's a trance that's in tune with reality. So even as things change, the mind isn't phased or upset. I mean, ultimately, if it was someone in our tradition asking that, I would say, try and note the feelings of trance, or whatever they may be. There'll be different qualities. The focus, there will be the, if the calm or the quiet. You can even just say quiet, quiet if there's nothing. But if you feel the tr feel 
as you say, like you're in a trance, you just note that feeling. Usually some sort of piti. When you say feeling, feeling. How long after a thought or experience can I note it? I'll be thinking for a moment and then hear something so I note it. And then my mind comes back to the moment earlier when I was thinking. Well, your mind is now in a different sort of thinking or knowing you know, when you're aware of the, the, or remembering the fact that you were thinking. So you might not remembering. You should know what's going on right then when you were thinking, oh, I just thought something. Well, that's a new thought. You should note that as thinking. This is not exactly meditation related, but someone said, I lost my wife to cancer 18 months ago. Will I ever see her again? I don't know. I don't know. There's no... You know, the, re the reality is there's no her to see. What you see is rupa. You see light, actually. Light touches the eye, it's processed by the brain, and then there's a process by the mind and a recognition and a conception of that being such a such a person and then the identification of that being my person you know and none of that is actually what you saw what you saw was just rupa and rupa is always arising and ceasing so, I mean, when you close your eyes, you might see her. And then you can say, yes, you saw her again. But this, And the same goes for everything else. You, you say, well, no, but there was a real person there who, who the light was bouncing off, right? But, well, that person was even the rupa, even the physical form. Any feelings or any uh, contact, hearing their voice and so on. All of that is also just experience. It's just rupa. Sights and sounds and smells and tastes and feelings and thoughts. So, I mean, I know what you're asking is whether you'll ever connect with the being who was behind all of that. And the, I, that's and the answer to that. I can't, I, I don't know. It's quite likely that we meet the people who we were fond of. Um, the Buddha, what the Buddha said about this was, if you have similar sila, similar behavior, you're likely to meet such people again. People you have connection with. If you have similar sila, similar morality, behavior, ethics, in fact, probably the better your morality and ethics are, the more likely it is, because your mind is more able to decide where it's going to go or be clear about where it's going to go. If you have low and, and lack of ethics, it's much less likely that you're able to control where you're going to go. It's much more chaotic and unpredictable because the mind is, of course, un less less stable. The next question, I'm not sure, it's about someone else, but I'll ask and you could decide. Is the meditation we do, is it similar to Deepa Ma's meditation practice, her meditation lifestyle? As a lay person, it's very inspiring. 
Yeah, I can't comment. I don't know. I recently had white flashing, rising white light while meditating. Is there anything to make of this or is simply some sort of hallucination? You know what it's called? It's called seeing. And it should be noted as such. So when you see something, you should say to yourself, seeing, seeing. If you haven't read our booklet, the booklet, I recommend reading the booklet on how to meditate. If you're interested to know how I teach and practice. How long should someone meditate daily, in your opinion, especially someone who has meditated cons consistently for years? Would several hours be unnecessary with consistent mindfulness throughout the day? Well, I think you're kind of getting at the crux of it. It's that you, sh you should be mindful throughout the day. So, of course, formal meditation helps with that a lot. And if, um, you know, unless you're enlightened, you know, unless you're mindful all the time, you probably need that, that boost of, of the formal practice. But it's also, it also happens that people do formal practice and then become dependent on it in the sense that they don't then carry it over into daily life. So the two methods... Uh, they complement each other. Now, if you just start increasing the formal practice you do, that's fine. Uh, you don't need to worry about being mindful during daily life because well, you're in formal meditation and, of course, you're much more likely to be mindful then. The problem with it is is the intensity of it sometimes can lead people astray because any uh, any imperfections of practice are going to be amplified because of the intensity of formal practice. So if you don't have a teacher to keep you on track, to check, if you don't have someone checking on you to make sure you're not getting off track, the, the intensity of it can magnify or multi uh, amplify any, any problems you might be having. So that's something to, to be aware of. And I can't give any more specific advice because I can't I, I don't know I don't know you or maybe I do I don't know who you are I don't know who asked this question I often find that I end up being too mindful of my mindfulness a sort of loop it becomes difficult to break out of this. Any advice? Well, you don't have to break out of things. You have to note them. So when you know that that's happening, just say knowing, knowing, something like that. If there's any reactions to it, liking, disliking, frustration, you know, worry, you should note all that. There's much more going on probably than, you re than you're noting, than you're aware of. And you have to start being aware of all of the aspects of it, any thoughts and emotions and so on. Where can I find this booklet you speak of? One day I also put the link here. Oh, you're good. See, this is Shraddha, by the way. Shraddha, if you don't, if you aren't aware, she's helping me. She's from Nepal. And she's one of the few people who went on the, the pilgrimage with us. And she was recently here for quite a while. So, thank you. Asked and it's answered. A, also to mention, it's on the, it's on most of the videos. It's in the description as well. Should be in the description of this video. For sitting meditation, what is the difference between the mind that notes, the mind that strays away, and the mind that is 
focused on the rising and falling of the stomach? Are they all independent? Every moment of mind is a different mind. That's how mind works. Mind is moments. Honestly, this doesn't sound, seem like a very useful question. Is this a question that you needed an answer to in order to practice? That's the, that's the criteria, really. I only say that because I want to remind uh, whoever's asking this what they should be focused on, because focusing on these sorts of questions can be problematic just by focusing on them. You're overcomplicating things, I think. I think the next question is similar in that uh, what is the significance of the rising and well, it's a little different. What is the significance of the rising and falling stomach, and why is it the default object? Can we have other defaults like our breathing? Well, breath itself is conceptual. So you'd have to pinpoint what exactly it is that you're focusing on. Breath doesn't come into the body. That's Well, if it does, that's just one way of speaking about it. That's not an experiential way of speaking about it. So breath meditation is often very good at bringing about calm because the mind gets into a conceptual idea of the breath coming in and out or going in and out. Uh, the, the great thing about the stomach is it's, it's, not, it's not the breath. It's the body. And the body is, of course, the stomach itself is conceptual. But the movement, when you say rising, you're focusing on the feeling, the, the, the sensation of the expansion, the tension that arises in the stomach, and then the release of tension. And that's real. So there are other objects you can use, but they're less coarse and less obvious. This one is a very gro gross sort of object. And so it's very easy for the mind to pay attention to it. It's also unpredictable. It's less likely to lead to tranquility. Uh, I mean, in the sense of, of getting sidetracked by states of calm because it will challenge you, challenges you to, to not cling. There's nothing to cling to because it's unpredictable. It's very uncomfortable at first, but that's the point. The point is to help us to see impermanent suffering and non-self. And when you see how uncomfortable the stomach is, that's what you're seeing. And you're seeing how the mind isn't prepared for impermanent suffering and non-self. The mind is looking for, seeking out, and expecting stability, satisfaction, and control. And so this is the learning process that watching the stomach lets us engage in. Why does one become exhausted during sitting meditation? Is it mental or physical fatigue? We're not really interested in why things happen, which is a surprise to many meditators, I think. What we're interested in, in, in is what's happening and what's its nature. We're also interested in how we react to things, but that's about it. We're not interested in why things happen at all. It's not really important. If you, if like for taking this example, just to show, there could be a hundred reasons why one becomes exhausted, and knowing the reason isn't going to solve things. I mean, primarily because we're not trying to solve exhaustion, we're trying to solve our reactions to things like exhaustion. Bhante, the next few questions, they're not exactly about meditation or practice, but people who are wanting to learn about Buddhism or are new to Buddhism. So mm -hmm. maybe I could ask them and then... All could. right, well, we, I'm, let's be a little flexible, sure. Um, if a person lives in an area where there is not many vegetables, can they eat meat? I think you're misunderstanding. Uh, in Buddhism, we don't require people to be vegetarian. Well, not in our tradition, anyway. Not killing means not engaging in acts that are cruel. 
eating meat isn't of itself cruel, so technically eating meat isn't a problem. It's not about death or murder or anything like that. It's about, well, it's, it is about murder in the sense that murdering is a bad act, you know. But it's not about preventing murder. It's about not committing it. And it's not about preventing unethical behavior. It's about not committing it. We're not interested in saving the world or fixing the world. Now, being vegetarian is a very good thing, um, ethically as well, because it it helps create a better world. It's just that that's not really the goal of Buddhism. It's not where we're focused, because, well, a truly good world is possible, um, but not permanent. It's not a stable solution. So it's not our main focus. If if tangentially you want to be med you want to be vegetarian, that's a great thing, sure. But don't think that you have to be vegetarian. It's not it's not necessary, strictly speaking, for the path. Is noting things a form of desire? What is meant by the term desire as I'm new to Buddhism? You know, noting is a way of reminding yourself. Desire is the the mental pull. I mean, it's a it's a fundamental mind state. It's the attraction that arises in the mind. Thirst, the Buddha called it. Desire is very fundamental. It's hard to define it any other way because, well, it's, it's it's not you can't break it down. It's that state of mind of liking or wanting something. Liking or wanting. That's those are the two sorts of ways we generally talk in English about desire. When you like something or you want it, but it's still either way. It's a pull. You feel pulled towards it. The opposite is aversion, right? Attraction and aversion, those are the two problems, problematic reactions. Where should I start when wanting to learn more about Buddhism as a philosophy and religion? Well, you should start by meditating under a teacher. That's a great way to start Buddhism because your teacher is also going to teach you the basics. You don't need to learn the the details. If you learn the basics, then you understand Buddhism. But once you've done that, then you should just start reading the Buddha's teaching because based on your practice, you'll be able to understand it and interpret it correctly and so on. You won't misinterpret it. You should interpret it based on practice. Meditation is getting me disconnected to the mundane life. That's quite scary sometimes. How to lead with this? Yeah, I don't know what the question means, but um, well, scary is something you can be mindful of. So say to yourself, afraid, afraid, or worried, worried. How can I work to be less selfish with my life and time? Um, I don't know that I teach people to be less selfish. Um, no, I, I just want to put that out there because it, it is in some ways a little bit misleading. Like, if you dedicate your life to being selfless is such a good word, right? It's a good thing. It's, a, it's an absolutely good thing. It's just the way we use it in English. If, if, you, if you were to dedicate yourself to being selfless in the way it's understood in modern society, it would mean helping everyone else. Selfless means sacrificing your own happiness for everybody else's. It would, it would be never-ending. You'll never, you'll never come to any kind of conclusion. But 
So, so you have to preface any response with that, that you have to understand what's wrong with being selfish. And selfish is, and why we call it selfish and, and why we call out people who are selfish is because of the greed and the conceit, you know, the arrogance, the, the belief that I deserve more than you and that sort of thing. I'm more important than you are and that sort of thing. And the craving and the desire that leads us to cling to what we have and not want to share it and so on. So rather than seeing it so much as selfish or selfless, you can see it as egotistical and greedy, or greedy and egotistical. I mean, it's ultimately greed at the base. And try and note those. I mean, ultimately the answer would be practice meditation. It's just I wanted to preface it because it's not entirely the way we're going you know, to, to be selflessly dedicated to others. But if you give up greed and if you give up egotism, there will be no selfish selfishness. doesn't mean you'll go around trying to help everybody else, but you'll have no aversion to helping others. You'll have no aversion to giving things to others. You'll have no attachment to the things you have or the things others have. I'm a visual artist, so my eyes are very active always. How can I still my eyes? What should I do with them? Well, you can close them. I mean, that would be it's a very sort of obvious answer. Um, but you don't. We're not trying to control or force things to be a certain way, like forcing them to be still. If your eyes are moving around, try and note that, like knowing or feeling, if you feel it. Seeing, of course, when you see things, say seeing, seeing. Try and just be patient with that. While meditating, I felt a spark. I know no feel a firm sense of peace and would like to meditate as often as possible. Could this be an attainment of sorts or is this my ego talking? It is what it is. There's no such thing as an attainment per se. Thing. There's only experiences. So when you feel a spark, that's a feeling. When you feel a firm sense of peace, that's a feeling. When you want to meditate as often as, as possible, well, that's probably desire or craving. And you should note liking, liking, or wanting, wanting. So you should note those as feelings. So if you haven't read the booklet, recommend start there. If you'd like to take an at-home meditation course, you can do that by visiting our website. There's information there. It's all free. The booklet's free. The, the courses are free. We're not here to make money. All the advertising I'm doing about our site and our you know, work it's all just as a gift. It's a gift for those we love. We love you all. So we give gifts to those we care about. Those we empathize with. Those we sympathize with. Those we identify with. We are all, we are all beings. We are all family. All of us, even the people you hate, even the people you wouldn't be caught dead in the same room with, even the people we lock up in the jails, even the people we put to death, even the people we are happy they're, de they're dead. Oh, they were our relatives. We're all in this together. So, since you're all family, we're, it's our duty to help. How can we use meditation to correctly identify and understand our emotions? 
Uh, if you haven't read the booklet, that's a good question relating to the practice. And the answer is, I think, in the booklet. If you've done that, then maybe consider taking the online or the at-home meditation course. happens if you're experiencing something but do not have an appropriate mantra can one just be mindful without noting or do we have to note to be mindful so noting is the practice of cultivating mindfulness some people have more mindfulness than others or are more inclined to mindfulness than others that's not the point the point is to cultivate it and so the noting is a means of cultivating it there are other means I don't think they're generally as efficient or as successful. So I recommend to use the noting to help you cultivate mindfulness. When you feel something, it's a feeling. You can just say feeling. If you have an awareness, you can say aware, or we use knowing often, because knowing means what you're aware of, acknowledging that you're aware of something. It's just a means of reminding yourself that it is what it is so that you cultivate this quality that we call mindfulness. They combine two questions because they're kind of in the same about the same thing. Is there an optimal length of time to sit and meditate throughout the day? Or is it based entirely on the individual? And then someone else asked, I've been doing several 15-minute meditations per day for 45 days in a row now. Should I try to go for longer sittings? So they're both asking about sitting, which means they, neither one of them has probably read the booklet. Or if they have a lot of, some people read the booklet and just ignore the walking part. <laughs> and of course the prostration part. But uh, you shouldn't ignore the walking. If you want to ignore the prostration, that's fine. But the walking, you shouldn't ignore it. So sh you should be doing walking and sitting. Do walking first and then sitting. That's what the Buddha recommended. And yeah, 15 minutes is pretty short. If you've been doing for 45 days, you should really be upping that. Oh, but you say several 15 minutes. Yeah, it should go for longer. Longer walking, longer sitting, but try to do equal walking and equal sitting if you can. Is it based on the individual? Yes. Yes, it's based on the individual, but I hesitate because it's not. it shouldn't be up to the individual, individual necessarily. Sometimes it's good to have someone putting you through a, a program. So if you're doing a meditation course, the teacher will increase the amount of time. For the at-home course, I don't do that. We, we put a minimum of one hour and then tell you by the end of the course you have to be up at two hours and then eventually I'll check on you to make sure you're getting up to two hours but some people do more than that you know two or three hours four hours a day but uh, but yeah you should be doing more than I would recommend more than 15 minute sessions once you've once you've gotten comfortable with it try to get up to half an hour walking half an hour sitting eventually per session course, in a real course, we would do one hour walking, one hour sitting. There aren't any Buddhist teachers where I live. Is using your videos as a way of learning about meditation and the Buddhist teachings okay? Recommend reading the booklet. It's a bit better than the videos. And if you've done that, then actually take the at-home course because the books and the video, the book and the videos only give the first exercise. Other further exercises uh, are reserved for actual interaction one-on-one, -on -one, so I can be sure you're ready for what we're giving. I struggle to end the desire of having other people meditate. Any advice on how to halt this desire? 
We're not trying to halt things. In fact, seeing that you can't halt it is uh, part of the wisdom, part of the goal. So seeing that you're not in control of the desire is important because it shows how unmanageable it is, how un unwieldy it is. We think, yes, I'm going to desire this and that'll be something I can turn on and turn off and it's actually not manageable like that. So just try and be mindful and patient with it when you want something, say wanting, wanting. Try and catch yourself when you... And then when you want it to go away, note that wanting, or when you're upset about it or worried about it or so on. Try and note all that. You mentioned not forcing. During walking meditation, I feel like we sort of have to sense we only focus on the feet, foot and not the mind. If I was were to pause every time, I think I would be nearly standing. Well, there's nothing wrong with standing meditation. You can't ignore some things if they're not pulling you away, but you're not forcing. If you have to force the mind to the foot, then there's something you should stop and note for sure. So it's, there's no one way, there's no black, it's not black and white. You have to be clever about it. When you're really distracted by something, you should stop. If it's just a stray thought and you think that's not going to bother me, I'll just bring the mind back to the foot. It's not forcing. If it is forcing, well, then you should stop. Nothing wrong with standing. How can we overcome impatience during our meditation? Through mindfulness. If you've read the booklet, if you haven't read the booklet, I recommend reading it. You know, it's the kind of thing that you would note impatient, anxious, bored, restless. Impatience isn't really a thing, right? It's a negative, so you have to see what's there. Usually a boredom or anx anxiety or restlessness. Or a desire, maybe you want to do something else and it's making you impatient. The next question is not exactly about meditation, but if one is being mindful, then why is a description of a Noble Eightfold Path made? Wouldn't these things be innate to mindfulness? No, not at all. All eight of them are important. It's worth, worth studying. If you study them, you'll see why they're important. just asking some meditation related questions first and then I'll come back to the other questions there were a few other questions yeah I mean in, sorry just about that last one I mean in some ways when you're being mindful you're also following all the Eightfold Noble Paths it's just Eightfold Factors but it's just to get there you know you have to be aware of all eight because they're all different but uh, you know there is something if you want to say that when you're being when you're truly being mindful then of course all eight path factors are perfect um, but that's not really saying much because to get to that perfect point, you gotta know and and be aware of the other seven. You know, if you're not clear on right view and you have wrong view, you're never gonna get to the point where you're truly mindful. You have wrong livelihood, wrong a wrong action, wrong speech. All of that is gonna take away from your seek your search for that true noble eightfold path. If one is meditating and experiencing a dark night, do you recommend continuing that particular meditation session or stopping? 
we don't use that terminology. I know where it comes from and I don't subscribe to it. So what you're experiencing will be within the four satipatthana and yes, you should be able to break it up and, and be mindful of those things. Never try. I, I do not recommend trying to put labels on on states as being this or that. They are what they are. If there's if it's body, kaya, if it's vedana, if it's jitta, if it's dhamma, it should be noted as such and not given any kind of interpretation. So everything you're experiencing there can be noted as it is. Definitely recommend that. How am I able to build more self-awareness? Through, I mean, that's a good description of sort of of what we practice. So I'd recommend reading the booklet and maybe taking a meditation course. The next one is more about the precepts. How bad is alcohol? I really like to have a glass every other day. Why do you really like to have a glass every other day? What does it do for you? I guarantee that whatever it does for you is actually the problem. It's the aversion or the, the aversion and the avoidance of what you should be facing. Alcohol is really the exact opposite of mindfulness. It allows you to avoid it gives you the power to avoid what you should be focusing on meditation is about confronting and alcohol is about avoiding really if you just like the taste well have something that tastes similar without having to become intoxicated because alcohol is really bad for you both physically and mentally how bad is it well a glass every other day is you know how bad is killing someone every other day <laughs> No, it's not that bad, but you get the point. The point The point is not that it's as bad as killing someone every other day. If it's bad, it's bad. How bad is a little bit of feces? If I told you you had to eat a very small amount of feces every other day, would that make it any less feces? You should note liking, liking, or wanting, wanting and try and see what it is that alcohol does for you, because I guarantee that's the opposite of what you should be doing. That's the actual thing you should be confronting. And by not confronting it, you're just making it more powerful and more and worse. to be mindful at all times yes I mean it's sort of the intermediate goal right the final goal is to be free from suffering which is different I felt I went from Samadhi to Brava Nirvanam. I couldn't tell if the state was just dream asleep. Is there a difference? I've never heard of Brava Nirvanam. I assume the second word is Nirvana. Brava. I don't know. It sounds Sanskrit actually because they're using Nirvana. Oh, what the heck they're talking about. Okay, I couldn't tell if this state was just dream asleep. Sleep is there. Uh, hmm. is there a difference honestly these sorts of things yeah I don't know because I don't is there a difference yes there's a difference but I don't know what you are experiencing and this isn't the sort of thing you should fret or worry about you should focus on your practice on the present moment and you'll start to notice what happens and as a result the experience of Nibbana can occur and that's great but, but the the 
the important point, the important thing is what actually happens, the results, the the consequences, and so you're looking at the the destruction of ignorance, the destruction of greed, anger, delusion, of the, the tendency and the potential for these things to arise. So you're looking for freedom from suffering. Keep your mind focused on those things. Don't obsess too much about experiences you might have during the course. This one, similar to a question you answered earlier, is it okay that we're forcing the foot during walking meditation? I mean, when, when, you, when you walk down the street, do you consider it forcing? It's not really forcing to decide to walk. You know, if you have to force it, then there's something wrong, and you should note whatever it is that's preventing you from simply moving the foot. Right? If you'd rather be doing something else, you should note that. not really forcing to decide to do walking I mean, you got to do something we're always doing something if, you, if you're not walking you're standing so then do standing meditation I do sitting meditation and watching the stomach I start breathing very fast and it can stay the whole meditation is that okay or should I change the breathing you should note that note the feeling of breathing fast if you notice it say knowing knowing look at how it feels if there's any resultant bodily sensations but there's no yeah everything is we're not we're not ever going to say something is not okay, we're just going to try to study it and learn about it. The okay, not okay happens in the mind. The mind will, through observation, start to differentiate what is okay and what is not okay. You don't ever have to decide. The mind, it will, it will just happen from observation. It's a natural process through, through seeing clearly. That's why we call this meditation vipassana. It means to see clearly. Through seeing clearly, all good and bad is... It, it it sort sorts itself out. You don't ever have to judge. Monte, the next few questions are not exactly about um, meditation, but people have asked, so maybe I can put it up and you could decide. All right. I will pass if if I want. Can a person combine Zen with Theravada teachings? I want to read the Dhammapada while I practice Zen Buddhism. Yes, that's fine. What is your best advice for someone who wants to spread meditation around the world? Not wanting, wanting. <laughs> that was probably quite predictable. <laughs> um, yeah. Not wanting, wanting. I mean, this longer answer, spread the teaching by, by living the teaching, you know, just as a matter of course, because you'll always be in contact with people. It should come naturally. And meditation sometimes become an avoidance of doing other necessary other things necessary in one's life can it be misused or is it always good well, there's nothing else really necessary it depends what you mean by necessary you know it's uh, it's technically not even necessary to to eat or drink or anything sleep it's just that we're not good enough at meditation to make that a feasible answer so we we acknowledge that we have to eat and sleep and work and so we engage in all those things for the purpose of supporting our meditation while we're not very good at it that's technically the the, the way it is so meditation's always the, the reason why we do everything 
you know, if we get our, if we ever get our minds straight. Of course, that's for for most of us. That's not the case. We have many other goals, some spiritual, some worldly, but none of those goals are really important. Ultimately, they will come and go. We'll attain them and still have more to do. But the meditation leads to an attainment, achutta, that you don't fall away from. Can it be misused? I mean, the word meditation means so many different things. If you're referring to the meditation that I teach in, in the booklet that I was taught, that, that you know we follow... I mean, it could be misused by someone who wants to make money off of it or wants to profit off of it or wants to manipulate people. It's very easy to manipulate people. As I shouldn't be saying this. Only because it will lead people to to do that. But spiritual teachers can be so... have such power over their students. Don't let people have power over you. Because everybody... Because you, you, you don't know enough about it's very easy to to be beguiled by a charismatic teacher and you don't know enough about me or anybody to really you know follow everything we say and so it, it can be misused but you know more more uh, directly the actual practice of meditation can't be abusive or misleading there's no mis-meditation. If you're practicing correctly, I guess I'm not quite sure what you're asking, but if you're asking that, then that's not possible. If you're asking, can someone practice incorrectly and thus suffer from it? Absolutely, yes. That's why a good teacher is important. Well, a qualified teacher. What do I do if I'm meditating with an agitated mind and I have a hard time focusing on noting? Note the agitation. Say agitated, agitated, restless. I mean, you'll struggle. There's no, there's no shortcut. It's going to be a struggle. Try and try and lie down. That's a good advice for when you're agitated and do lying meditation. When you're agitated, you're less likely to fall asleep. So lying can be an a skillful solution. What is the earliest age to teach a child how to meditate and what techniques would you recommend? Well, the earliest a child can become enlightened according to the orthodox Dog doctrine is seven, but um, there's no earliest. I mean, they have to be able to understand what you're saying. They have to have a sense of. The problem is that before seven, they don't really have that sense. You know, seven might be a little bit too exact, but around that time, before that time, they don't have as much of a sense of themselves and self-awareness and so on. I mean, it's rare that anyone in the world does. It's rare that teenagers do. So, you know, you expect limited success, but I had uh, one of my students teaching her three and five-year-old. I have I made some videos on it for kids, and they were practicing according to that. And it was getting them to understand the idea of using a mantra to focus your attention is a very good start. Kids should all learn about mantras and how powerful they can be, dangerous if you are misused. Like a mantra can focus on a concept and really get you obsessed with it. If you focus on things that aren't what's actually happening, it can be, you know, it can be powerful and potentially dangerous. So you want to try and not only teach them mantras, but well, also teach them how to, you know, what they're experiencing, how to be self-aware. It's basically it. When you're walking, know that you're walking. You know, the Satipatthana Sutta is something a kid could understand. When walking, one knows I'm walking. 
uh, telling a kid to say to themselves, walking, walking. Depends on the kid, but not very not very in intellectually challenging. Um, Bhante, the next question I'm just putting up because I think someone may have misunderstood what you said earlier. Uh, you mentioned dark moments ago. Does that mean meditation can be dangerous? Yeah, I didn't use the word dark. I, I was referring to someone else, or you were referring to someone else using the, that some term? Yeah, someone had um, asked a question where they said it, dark nights. Yeah. Can meditation be dangerous? Well, I think I was just talking about that. Yeah, meditation. So I may have not gone into enough detail. How can a mantra be dangerous? Because you get obsessed with it. And because the object is not what's happening. See, the, the safety in focusing on what's happening is that it doesn't last. It's momentary. And so mindfulness doesn't have these problems that other meditations do that they can actually potentially drive you crazy. I mean, temporarily anyway, they wind you up so much because the object is always there and you can extrapolate on it, you can get lost in it and expand upon it and your imagination takes you away. You can't do that with something that's actually happening because it's gone <laughs> and, and then something new comes and then it's gone and so there's no clinging. Something The present moment is something you can't cling to. Reality is something that you can't cling to. So it makes it so hard to meditate ultimately because everything else you can cling to it and when you cling to it, it gets easier. Meditation, everything's disappearing and there's nothing to cling to. So you always have to be vigilant. That's why the Buddha, his final words were for us to be vigilant. But if you're focused on the present, on reality, it's very hard to get lost. It's very hard to lose your way and have anything dangerous come of it. The next question is not really for you, but someone asked the, what they can do to support. So I just put the link here that we do have a support page. Um, and it's also... Does. I'm sorry? Yeah, I'm, I mean, everything I do, there's resources required. I mean, there's someone using money. I'm not allowed to use money, have money, touch money, control money, but people are supporting what I do, so... There is that. I'm, I shouldn't try to mislead people or hide the fact that there is an organization that supports what I do. You're welcome to support them. It's just not payment for what I do. It's, it's, it's in a sense to keep allowing me to do what I do and us to do what we do and so on. And if people were not were to stop supporting the organization, then I'd have to stop doing what I do. If people support in new ways, then we can do more. Like if someone or if people start creating an, a movement to start a meditation center, then we don't have to just rent a house anymore. We can we live in a big house and we can use it as a meditation center, but we could do more if we had our own place, you know. So as an example, we've been talking about that, but none of it is None of it is something or something that we're pushing or or plugging. You know, we don't have any hidden agenda. But yeah, there's a link. You can get in touch with the organization. There's different ways to support. You can become a volunteer. We have volunteers, people who do things for the organization. We got a group of people transcribing some teachings and making a new book. Hopefully, we've got uh, people categorizing videos and audio and making a new audio collection. We have a board of directors. We got a digital poly reader. We have people who just did a great work on that, getting a new version of the digital poly reader. Lots of ways you can get involved. And and this isn't just a technical question, you know, this is a Buddhist question because the Buddha was big on good deeds. So doing good Another reason why we do this is because it's good, you know, me answering your questions from my knowledge and experience and the teachings I was given, that's a good thing. 
And so you all should do that as well. Share the teachings, repeat them to others, support the teaching, all those things. Very good things to do. Very important part of our practice. Not necessary, but very important. Very supportive. In so many ways. Even appreciation is good, you know, showing your appreciation, well, is that good? Yeah, showing appreciation, doing something out of appreciation, because appreciating good deeds or, or being grateful and all that, that's a very good thing as well. So I hope that didn't sound too self-serving, because I am talking about things that help me, so I to you know, it doesn't have to have anything to do with us or me or this organization. The good deeds are good, so I'm not afraid to say that. Don't be afraid of goodness, the Buddha said. Doing walking meditation, what should I look for or see? The truth, reality. You know, try not to use the eyes, though. You have to look with the mind. The mind should be not with the eyes, but with the feet when you walk. And then when there's other experiences, even if they're seeing or whether they're just thinking, try and note those. Stop walking and note those instead. Oh, we're at nine o'clock. So how are we doing? How many more questions? Uh, we have a few more meditation questions and a lot of a lot of uh, um, non-meditation questions. Let's just do the, the few the few meditation questions and then finish. And questions that weren't answered, you can always try asking them again next time. We may not answer them then either. While I'm engaged in my day-to-day -day activities, such as talking to friends, family, eating, watching TV, etc., should I be noting in the background or just be focused on that particular activity? Yeah, try to note if you can. It's a great exercise. It helps bring you back to experience. It helps shift your perspective back to an experiential perspective, you know, away from the cerebral activity of interpreting everything. People, places, things, relationships, reactions. It's a very good practice that we should come back to again and again throughout the day. It's a very good thing to do. Through meditation, I have noticed I tend to be very passive and a people pleaser. Can furthering my meditation allow myself to be stronger in my own person? Well, don't expect meditation to answer your questions. It'll give you the tools you need to answer your questions. But when you notice this, you have to, through using mindfulness, decide what is the appropriate action. And meditation isn't going to magically give you the answers. It's just going to put your mind in a clear spot so that you can come up with the answers yourself. And, and and that even being said, sometimes you won't come up with the answers and you need trial or error, trial and error, or you need um, guidance from someone else, you know. So you need um, to, to read the Buddha's teachings. I recommend studying the Buddha's teachings to get a sense of the things that you, the sorts of things that are proper to do and, and what makes action proper and so on. So there's nothing wrong with being passive. There's nothing wrong with um, acquiescing to people's requests and so on. Uh, but if you want, and if you're you're if you're reactionary in the sense that when someone wants something, you immediately leap to help them. That's not because of the meditation. That's something that maybe's come up through the meditation, but it's something that should be noted as well, and eventually that will go away. You have, but you have to make decisions. So someone needs my help. Is it proper to help them? Meditation is not always going to give you the answer. It'll just help you have a clear mind when you do process the question. So I mean, ultimately, 
and the answers we come up with are not nearly as important with, as the state of mind when we came up with them. So if you make a mistake and you choose the wrong solution, it's not actually wrong in the sense that, in any sense that's meaningful. Because if your mind was pure, even you made the wrong choice. It doesn't, it doesn't have this scarring effect on the mind. It's not like you had bad intentions, right? And that being said, you you can't just rely on that in the sense everything I do is right. It's not true. It's just that what's much more important is your 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 quality of mind. And what's going to really hurt is when you do something because it's greed, because you're greedy. You do something because you're angry, worried, afraid, any of the agati. Raga, uh, uh, what is it? Chanda agati, dosa agati, mohagati and uh, bayagati so greed, anger, delusion and fear if you do things for those reasons they're bad that's what's going to scar the mind practice should I incorporate into my day that can help other than just the meditation? Well, there's not much else that you need, you know. I mean, ethics is is the opposite of, of a practice. And ethics is sort of the other side. There are things you shouldn't do. Um... You know, good deeds are something you should incorporate, as I mentioned, you know, giving charity, uh, helping others, being kind, speaking the truth. Dana Sila Bhavana is a very simple, simple formula that's very common and well understood in Buddhist societies. These are the three Punya Kiriyavatu, the three ways of cultivating or, or accomplishing goodness. So ethics, charity or generosity, giving, giving, and meditation. Charity, I'm sorry, ethics, giving, and meditation. Giving, ethics, and meditation. Dana Sila Bhavana. I think that was the last of the questions. The rest are not exactly. Okay. Sadhu. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your mindfulness and your practice. If you have more questions, you can find us next time. No guarantees when that will be, but... We're rumored to have another session this Friday, this Saturday at 3 o'clock.